This is episode number 258, How to Up Your Game and Training Plan with Sufferfest coach Neil Henderson. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. I was never a big fan of exclusively one sport, multi-sport doing different things. I had a rule with some of the younger athletes that I did coach in cycling that they weren't allowed to ride their bike exclusively all year round. They had to do some other sport. I don't care if it was baseball or soccer football, things that seem like they have absolutely no connection to cycling because they don't. And that's fine. Learning and, and having a social skill, learning tactics and techniques and things in a totally different realm, it's actually good. You know, there's actually a super book by uh, author David Epstein, Range, about, you know, it's not necessarily about the athletic side of that, of, of having all these different experiences, but just as a person, having a broad array of different interests and skills and experiences definitely is is better than being a single channel like one super you know great depth of only one thing this has been a pretty fun week because i've gotten to go on a couple of podcasts that will be coming out in the near future just getting to talk about my favorite subjects how to improve your attitude how to stick to your habits how to set better goals things that i love talking about and also talking about plant-based nutrition And today's episode with coach Neil Henderson touches on some other topics that I love, how to train. And training can be a black box for a lot of people, but once you figure out the basics of how to train to be a faster cyclist or a faster runner, then you can start customizing your own plan. So who is Neil Henderson? I met Neil a long time ago when I was living in Boulder because he's been coaching endurance sports athletes since the early 1990s, and he founded his own coaching company. He has coached several national champions, multiple world champions, and several Olympians. Neil raced triathlon professionally from 2000 to 2003. He is an elite USA triathlon and USA cycling certified coach and was a 2007 USA cycling developmental coach of the year. He was also named the 2009 USA national cycling coach of the year and in 2011 was awarded the Doc Councilman Coach of the Year Award by the United States Olympic Committee for the use of science in his coaching. Neil has been a staff member at the 2012 and 2016 Olympic Games as a cycling coach and has served on multiple coaching committees for USA Cycling and USA Triathlon. And more recently, Neil Henderson has joined Wahoo Fitness as the head of sports science. That also means that he plays a key role in the Sufferfest training app. And the Sufferfest is also part of Wahoo Fitness and is a comprehensive training app for time crunch cyclists and triathletes. Subscribers get unlimited access to a library of structured workouts designed by elite coaches like Neil, 100 plus training plans, strength training for cyclists, yoga for cyclists, and a 10-week mental toughness program. Sufferfest is an incredible app that I personally use and One of the things that makes the Sufferfest unique, apart from all of the other training programs aside from cycling that it offers, is the 4DP platform creates very effective workouts. And that's something that we're going to be talking about in today's podcast, because Neil, together with cycling physiologist Mac Casson, 
came up with a new type of personalization methodology for people using Sufferfest, and that is the 4DP or four-dimensional power. In a nutshell, this varies and differs from what you would normally hear about your FTP or your functional threshold power, because if you do the test, the full frontal in the app, it actually gives you a bunch of different measurements, four different measurements in different areas. So you could be a really strong athlete in one area and not so much in another, but the training programs that you'll get based on that four-dimensional power is going to help you improve everywhere. I highly recommend you check out the Sufferfest app, and I have a code for you guys. It's my name, Sonia60, Sonia60 in all caps, and it's good for two free months in addition to the standard 14-day trial, or if you choose to get an annual subscription, you get 30 bucks off. So use the code Sonia60 whenever you go to the Sufferfest app and sign up. And again, it's awesome because not only do you get these very amazing and funny cycling workouts. The Sufferfest has just so many videos and commentary that's really entertaining while you're doing these hard workouts, but you also get yoga, strength training, and mental toughness training. So in today's episode with Neil, we touched on what training actually is and how maximal is not always optimal and how there is a sweet spot for training. We talked about indoor versus outdoor training, intensity, and specificity, And we talked a lot about the four-dimensional power training, so you can get more information on that. Things like neuromuscular anaerobic power, max anaerobic power, and also the complete picture of what it means to be an athlete. And that last point is so meaningful to me, the complete picture, because none of us are robots. All of us have tons of different inputs in our lives and different hats that we wear. And oftentimes we forget to factor those things in whenever we're doing our training or even just our recreational riding and hoping that we can show up as our best. If you want to learn more about finding your best, I have a weekly newsletter at sonyalooney.com newsletter, where I write an article every single Monday about mindset, motivation, and performance, and also give you a heads up on the podcast episode of the week. So make sure to go to sonyalooney.com newsletter. I put a ton of time into this, and I love that you guys are reading it and enjoying it. And if you're not, you're missing out. And on another level, if you want to take your performance to greater heights, check out Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker provides blood work for athletes, and that means that there are over 30 biomarkers measuring things like cortisol, some of your hormones, magnesium, vitamin D, ferritin, liver enzymes, and so much more. Each biomarker shows a tighter and optimized range so that you can add in healthy foods and lifestyle changes to perform your best. And there's lots of different goals that you can set within Inside Tracker. You can set things like heart health or sleep or even endurance training. So punch on over to insidetracker.com slash Sonia to get 25% off all of the tests on their website. I highly recommend doing it at least once to get a baseline and a second time to retest to see if the things that you're doing are working. It's something I've been using since 2017 and having that reassurance that all of my diet and lifestyle choices are working for me and also how to get the best out of myself. So go to insidetracker.com slash Sonia to get that 25% off. Okay, let's get into today's episode with Neil Henderson. Neil, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you very much. It's great to be here. So fun to get to chat with you because I mentioned I lived in Boulder for eight years and I saw you around and I'm sure we've met a few times. Like I I know that I've talked to you before and it's just fun to be able to connect on the Wahoo Fitness side of things. Definitely. Yeah, it's been... uh... It's a great place here in Boulder. I've been here for over 20 years. I came out for grad school and I never left. So love, love being here for sure. 
Yeah. And I have to say you're to blame for some of uh, the pain I've experienced on my trainer, some of these workouts. <laughs> so now I can look I... at you in the face and, and say it's, it's your fault. <laughs> it is my fault. There, there, there are some people who uh, let me know uh, their displeasure of uh, some of the sessions sometimes, but you know, big picture, a little bit of that for uh, then the net gains, they, they usually balance out. Yeah, Hopefully on- they should. A mantra I used the other day whenever I was riding the trainer and head was down suffering was, this is what you came for. This is what you signed up for. And that mental piece, we'll talk about that in a bit, but that mental piece is so important. Absolutely. It cannot be denied. Sometimes I I tell athletes, you know, we train not to make it easier, but to be able to actually go even deeper. And that's where you have great performances. It's not that it was easy. It's that you're able to go to another level. I love that. So let's start with the bird's eye view of training because a lot of times it's easy to get stuck in the weeds. So big picture, like what is training? Yeah. So uh, training really is about applying some level of, you could say, load, stress, and strain to the body and to the mind to create a need for an adaptation or a change. So you need to be able to stress the body in some way to have it respond and be able to be capable of doing more in the future. And that's from the highest level, I would say, probably the the big picture. You have to have to challenge your body, have to challenge your mind. And then you have to balance that stress with recovery. If you don't recover, all the work doesn't really do much or can actually make you worse and, and perform more poorly, slowly, et cetera. So work appropriate rest, improvement in capacity to perform. That's 10,000 foot view, maybe. Yeah. And that sounds simple, but that doesn't mean easy at all. There are so many elements that go into the human as like human physiology, but then there's like all the inputs that people have in their lives and that nuanced little balance point of, you know, how much stress do I have? How much recovery do I have? And most people don't, well, most people don't recover enough. And yeah, I'm sure you've seen that so much with all of your athletes. Yeah, I would say, especially, you know, with with a lot of times amateur athletes, folks that have a job, have family, they fixate on the training and the load and the work being done. And they tend to ignore the true value of the recovery and they'll lose sleep to get more training in, which then they do more training, which they needed more sleep. And it's a pretty vicious cycle that can sneak up and really cause problems then. Yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned people giving up sleep to train harder. And I think that that's a big topic because people, a lot of people are getting up early to train and they're trying to find time to train, but then there's a trade-off of like, well, I, if I don't get to bed early enough, do I skip my workout in the morning? Yeah. And that's often, uh, you know, when, when sometimes when I start with a new athlete, you know, have a questionnaire and different things, like how much time can you train? And people always put these like exorbitant numbers of, oh, I can train 18 or 20 hours consistently. It's like, wait, you said you have, you know, a a two-year-old, a six-year-old, you work full-time and, you know, you have something in the community you're involved with. I'm like, what's your kind of general sleep? You know, like, oh, five hours. I'm like, okay, well, there aren't too many folks out there that are operating at a high level, both physically and mentally and emotionally, all those things with that little sleep combined with all these other stressors in their lives. So 
that balance is going to be hard to maintain. And so let's look at like a kind of training that isn't the maximum that you can do, but in some cases, the least amount of training that will provide the greatest amount of improvement and keep you away from that edge of being absolutely on your limit. Yeah. And I think especially cyclists are looking at maximal instead of optimal. And a lot of times people think maximal is optimal. So I'm so glad that you just said that they're not the same thing. Yeah, that's absolutely so, so critical for folks to understand that, you know, again, I sometimes have this little graph of like, as you train more, you get better, right? You keep going up and then it kind of levels off a little bit. And then there's this cliff that you drop off. And a lot of people, you know, in the past, you know, that that's that edge, you know, that, that if they go just a little bit more, they just plummet greatly, whether it's getting sick, an injury, completely burned out, any of those things. And I've had a lot of athletes over time, like, I know where that edge is. So if I just stay just below that, I'm good. It's like, well, actually, like your best place is not right at that edge. Because like, if, you know, something comes along, if you have a work project that elevates your stress level just a little bit, or, you know, something else in life that will just knock you right over that edge without you thinking about it as a training related thing. And it's a recovery related thing. So staying back on a more in this sweet spot back here gives you an ability to tolerate a little bit of an increase in other life stresses that you can't calculate or, you know, quantify in a way that, you know, again, I'm a, I'm a data guy, I'm a sports science guy. I love nerding out on the numbers, but we don't have all those inputs very well monitored necessarily in that respect. And so I find it's always to be better on that point of knowing you could do a little bit more in training, but for now you're not because you have that, that range um, and ability to recover from it rather than being right at that upper edge. Yeah. And that's really hard to practice in real life because number one, the culture is culture celebrates grind and hustle and like working every single second of the day and like having the most hours on Strava and also just the comparison part of seeing what everybody else is doing and I'm not working hard enough and I'm falling behind. So how do you help people mentally reconcile with that? Yeah, it's, you know, in some cases I just show examples, you know, of of athletes that I've worked with and, and how they've had success without being anywhere near what everyone thinks is necessary you know, I've worked with Rowan Dennis since he turned pro. So, you know, fall of 2012, um, started working with him and have worked with him all the way through now. We're getting ready for Tokyo in a few weeks. But as an example, last year during the lockdown, he was in Girona, Spain, and they had a hard lockdown, no outdoor activity. And so for seven weeks, he was just on the indoor erg. And I was like, okay, well, we don't exactly know when the races will start again. And let's just stay at a level that is sustainable here for a while and not really try to make massive advances. You know, we're just trying to like kind of maintain where you're at. So we're going to address and do like a harder day, a little bit easier day, and then a rest day. The rest day, you can either spin or if you just don't feel like sitting on the trainer that day, completely off the bike. He was training generally around 12 hours a week. 10, 12 hours a week was what he did for those seven weeks. And did he lose a little bit of fitness? Yeah, he definitely did. But he didn't put himself on that like mental and emotional limit that once it gets to start to ride outside again, he was able to dial it up and regain things and then be great, you know, through that October period and help his teammate win the the Giro d'Italia and again, have something left over and not just be completely spent, 
And so I know there are plenty of other pros that were on their erg, on the kicker, doing 20 plus hours. And it's like, yeah, you can do it, but at, a, at what cost? And so when I use that example with, with an amateur, you know, it's like, listen, this is a world tour, you know, one of the best professionals, world champion and training about 12 hours a week, like with, with success as well as even the, the year before leading into the world championships, he didn't do a single week over 20 hours in the last, almost in the last over seven weeks of training leading into the world championships, you know, 15, 16 was pretty much the sweet spot. There was one week that was like 19 hours, but the specificity of, of having purpose and valuing rest and recovery paid dividends. And that, that applies, you know, and that's somebody with superhuman physiology. I mean, he's born with massive VO2 max and all these other things. And so, you know, they're a, a, a nor, more normal person who doesn't have that extraordinary physiology and ability to exclusively focus probably could do very well on a lot less training, but with specificity and valuing that rest. Yeah. Having time to rest and being specific with your training. And then also, you know, maybe having time to enjoy other parts of your life because balance, you know, intentional imbalance is what I like to call it. Cause I don't believe balance exists, but having time to be happy in life. And there's, there's a lot of really great data that shows that the happier you, you are in life, the more successful you're going to be. So if you're always at your limit training, like just and never having time for anything else. And like, you're just stressed out, like running from work to training and your kids. And it's just, it's just not a good place to be, you know, long-term. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's unsustainable again, yeah. for a short period of time, you might tolerate it, but tolerating still doesn't mean you're getting better from doing it. It's just like, you're not maybe getting any worse in some yeah. cases for a period of time. And so that's really, really important for sure. And so, yeah, there's, uh, that's another thing, you know, with younger athletes, like I was never a big fan of exclusively one sport, you know, multi-sport doing different things. I had, I had a rule with some of the younger athletes that I did coach in cycling that they weren't allowed to ride their bike exclusively all year round. They had to do some other sport. I don't care if it was baseball or soccer, or football, things that seem like they have absolutely no connection to cycling because they don't. And that's fine. Learning and, and having a social skill, learning, learning tactics and techniques and things in a totally different realm. It's actually good. You know, there's actually a super book by uh, author David Epstein range about, you know, it's not necessarily about the athletic side of that, of, of having all these different experiences, but just as a person having a broad array of different interests and skills and experiences definitely is is better than being a single channel like one super you know great depth of only one thing in my opinion just as a big picture yeah i was smiling because i was actually going to bring that book up because um david epstein's actually been on the podcast to talk about that book specifically and i was like he's just nailing it right now yeah i, I was fortunate to be able to speak at a conference with with david some years ago in denver and he's just super, you know, super presenter, uh, fabulous writer, like his writing is just amazing and, and oh, yeah. uh, a great thinker, I'll say. So, so you mentioned um, indoor versus outdoor training and your um, world tour athlete. What was his name? Sorry, I missed that part. Uh, Rowan Dennis from Australia. So, yeah. And he was training, you know, on the trainer 10 to 12 hours a week and indoor training. Like I've experienced this as well. Like I just move so I'll, I can ride outside in the winter more, but I've done exclusive indoor training three to four months and then gone to do Cape Epic or like some other stage race, not ideal scenario to not be able to ride outside at all. But 
always amazed with the level of fitness that I've been able to show up to those races with, with, you know, presumably way less hours than what my counterparts were training. So how, how do people, how should people look at indoor versus outdoor training in terms of efficiency? Yeah. So I would say that the big difference is like when you ride inside, you have a little bit more specificity in the training that you do. It's not necessarily as beneficial to just sit there and do super long endurance rides indoors, like four hours, you know, (laughs) just at a steady state is not a super great use of an indoor training modality, really. I mean, sure people do it, but man, I would not encourage that. So in that respect, then it's about having targets and training and workouts that are having really a purpose to them and being able to then lay out a nice progression, which is one of the nice things with indoor training. You can be very specific with each of your workouts and be able to have just this very, very progressive nature to it. So if I actually think of like, I live really close to this uh, climb in Boulder, the end car climb. It's not far. It's, you know, it's 2.8 K depending where you start it. So, you know, early season, if I go in a moderate effort, it like takes me 12 minutes as I get fitter, it takes 11 minutes. And then, you know, when I'm kind of fit, I can do it in under 10 minutes for, for, you know, kind of successive repeats. Well, in, in a way, like starting off, it's like, I either don't go to the top if I want to do like eight minute repeats early on and then progressively as I get more fit, I want to do a 12 minute repeat. And now I'm so fit that I can't, you know, that I get to the top before that 12 minutes. So I can't do that actually outside on that climb without either not doing the whole climb, which feels a little awkward. And I do that on occasion or on an indoor session, I can just build out over the weeks. Okay. I'm going to do six minutes this week, eight minute repeats, 10 minutes the week after back off an easier week. And I won't do any of those kind of efforts and, and have that nice progression, 12 minutes, 15 minutes, 12 minutes, 20 minutes back down. The indoor allows us to be super progressive and specific in that way. And it takes a lot less time to do that workout because say the recovery coming down the climb, I coast generally for, you know, three minutes because just going fast enough, you can't do anything. Whereas on the indoor, I can spend two minutes spinning and get that actual recovery and be ready for those next effort where it takes three or four minutes to get down the hill. And sometimes I want to ride for a minute before I start to hit that next effort rather than like go from cold coasting to hard effort. So the indoor specificity for sure, you can do a lot more in less time because you just don't, I mean, I don't coast on my stationary when I'm on the kicker or kicker bike. I Maybe some people do, but there's not, I don't find a lot of value in, in sitting there like simulating a descent, I'll say on a kicker and sitting there for 30 minutes and eating. Yeah. And I also love that like the wattage is set. So like, I mean, it depends on what mode you have, but if you're on erg mode, like you can't cheat the workout. Whereas like outside you might be a little bit all over the place. You know, you might be like hitting it too hard and then like going too easy. So having that, I personally love the controlled environment of doing an interval workout inside. And I also, for me, I can go way harder inside because and it's, and it is a way better confidence booster for race day for me. Like it might be different for other people, but I just, I can see the data right in front of me. I can see what I was capable of doing. I can see that progression and that because you're watching it on the screen. So I just, I, that's what I love about indoor training and sometimes like, I don't want it. I have to force myself to go outside to do interval workout. Cause I I'm the science person in me gets like stuck on wanting to see the data. Yeah, no, definitely. Like, I mean, right next to me, I've got my TT bike set up. So it allows me to, you know, make sure I get that time <laughs> on the TT position. It's set up, it's ready to go. 
quick and easy can get that. You know, sometimes I'll do workouts that are literally 30 or 45 minutes long. And that's, that's A, the time that I had available and B, I didn't have to muck around pumping up tires and whereas, you know, this or that, or this isn't working right. Like everything's ready to go in that, that one. And so like you mentioned, like some of the specificity, you also get to see like the work that you're doing, some power output, but you can see that connection between your heart rate, your perceived effort and learn about yourself in a really accelerated way. You know, way back when I was coaching Taylor Finney, when he first started as a 16 year old, I had a group of folks, you know, a group of juniors coming in, you know, a couple of days a week, you know, two days a week doing specific training. We were on compu trainers back then. This is pre kicker days, this is, you know, 2006. And it was huge because we actually would have them watch, you know, I had all those old race videos, World Cycling Productions. I don't know if you ever remembered those, but we'd watch a race on a screen on a TV in front of us. And then the copy trainer had the workout. And so they were both gaining fitness, learning about their body, seeing their heart rate, seeing that cadence and power of what's going on, as well as then like learning something about racing and in watching it like that, which really accelerated development in a way that in hindsight, it's like, wow, that actually worked out pretty well. Cause out of that, you know, I had eight kids and six of them ended up either on winning a national championship or racing on a professional team, you know, over the course of their careers. So mm-hmm. it, was, it was pretty fun. Pride and true. I wanted to actually talk about intensity because you said, yeah, doing your intervals, having efficient training, but a lot of people just go out and ride as hard as they can every single ride. And they think that that's good training or they think that they should be riding hard most days and then their easy days aren't easy enough. So can you talk about like the specificity part and the intensity part of training and the importance of that? Yeah, no. So I definitely believe in, in high intensity as one of the modes that we use in training, but I also believe that that high intensity needs to be specific to what your abilities are as a rider, as an athlete and kind of what what you're preparing for. So we do something with the Self-Refest software called 40P training. And it's really something that was born out of actually working with Taylor at the 2008 Olympics, where, you know, at the time, the training stress score was the big thing. Everyone was doing that and looking at CTL and looking at these things. I was like, Eh, I, I was like, okay, it's great if you're training like 20 hours a week. So for like pros and, and, you know, I, I coach some guys on the Toyota United team that were, you know, seasoned pros and training 20, 24 hours a week. The data from there looked pretty reasonable. There were more time trial type riders. And so using everything based off of threshold kind of worked well. My coaching background, though, is also a swim coach. And so first, mm-hmm. and so we have sprinters, we have mid distance and distance. And so sprinters, you know, a 50 or hundred meter event, you know, is a, you know, 20 to 50 second event or so. And then your mid distance, you're 200, 400, and then your long distance, you know, 800 meter, 1500 meter, even open water these days are totally different animals, not just in terms of what their physiology is, but then also the specificity of their training. And I also actually have a background in, in track and field. I did decathlon, pole vault, jet, discus were my forte events. And so if I look at the training of, you know, somebody who's preparing for hundred meters or 400 meters versus a mile versus a marathon, those things are all radically different. And in cycling, we actually do a little bit of all of those to some degree, even in a long, you know, road race, there's real sprinting that happens. There's anaerobic capacity, there's VO2 max type intensity, and then that's sustained around threshold. And then lots of time, not even 
anywhere near threshold, just kind of rolling along, trying to save energy. And so for me, it was like, okay, well, we have to think about training relative to those other systems rather than just the threshold, just that one point, which is where, you know, CTS and CTL and all of those things were just based off of that single metric. I said, well, just like in sprinting and, you know, in the water and track and field, it's like we can look at short-term power. So that five-second kind of neuromuscular peak power tells us something. And when we do sprint workouts, it should be relative to that sprint because we also see a huge sprint. Mm-hmm. Like you might have a, a super endurance rider who their FTP or threshold, let's just say is 400 watts and they, their absolute all-out sprint is 800 watts. Okay. I was working with Taylor as a junior. His threshold at that point was maybe 350 watts going to the Olympics, 10 plus percent less than the guys he was competing against. His max aerobic power though was over 500 watts and his, his five-second power was almost 2,000 watts. So on a start, we had to manage that start sprint power so that he didn't go too deep into that reserve and basically then fade out and slow down on the second half. And so when we did sprint workouts though, like he, if he's working at say 300% of his FTP, he was barely breaking a thousand Watts, which is 50% of his actual sprint capacity. Where if I asked that endurance rider with a 400 watt FTP to do the same sprint at 300% of their FTP, which is how things were being done at the time, you know, 15 years ago, that's 1200 watts, but this guy could only do 800 watts all at one time for five seconds. So it's like, it didn't fit anyone properly. Like some, mm-hmm. maybe it fit somebody, but it didn't fit those two people that I was working with. And so it's like, well, we need to look at this training and especially then that max aerobic power and uh, which is kind of like a five minute power is a good surrogate for that. And then anaerobic capacity, which is that kind of intermediate, like 30 seconds a minute type of effort or series of repeated kind of not maximal sprints. And so with 40P, we said, like, let's just put all these together and have then our high intensity training have that specificity to an individual sprint ability, an individual's anaerobic capacity, where their VO2 max or max aerobic power is, and then where their FTP is. And each one of them becomes then more accurate and fits the athlete better. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Some people listening might be well-versed in words like FTP and anaerobic, but other people listening might not be very well-versed. Can you just give a quick definition of those things? Yeah. So I kind of go top down. So that highest Mm -hmm. level, I think about like neuromuscular power is like sprint. So a very short, just a few second all out sprint coming from a sprint background. uh, We usually say, you know, sprinters are born. So Somebody who has a a greater percentage of fast twitch muscle fibers has a higher sprint capacity. People who are a little bit more slow twitch, more endurance oriented, have a lesser amount of fast twitch fiber. And so they don't sprint as high, like a real track sprinter, a BMX racer, you know, for guys that are 2000 to 2400 watts for a peak, you know, five second sprint, uh, women, you know, 1600, 1800 watts for, for peak five second power um, are kind of like world-class levels, which is just pretty in, pretty amazing when you think about it. Again, not sustainable. It's like one hit, nail it. Your vertical jump height would also be really well related to that peak sprint power. So if you wanted a surrogate, if you didn't have a power meter and you just got a bunch of people and you knew, wanted to know who could sprint well, I would just have them do vertical jump and those with the highest vertical leap guaranteed are going to be the, having the ability to have a higher peak sprint power. Interestingly, it's kind of like that muscle fiber type. Mm -hmm. Anaerobic capacity is this point where you're breaking down 
carbohydrates specifically without oxygen. And that results in higher production of lactate. There's no lactic acid actually in the human body. There is lactate though, which is a byproduct of breaking down carbohydrate without oxygen. And you can't sustain that for super, super long. There's some other negative feedback loops in, in the physiology that basically you're gonna slow down and eventually stop if you are going at those kind of intensities. So a 30 second to one minute all out effort kind of gives you a good idea of what that true anaerobic capacity is. Anybody you've got any hockey players, because I know you're in Canada now, a, a Wingate test is a 30 second all out sprint. That's kind of the classic measure of anaerobic capacity. But thinking of like running like a 200 meter sprint is a great example of what a true like anaerobic capacity type event is or swimming like a, a 100 meter kind of swim would be kind of analogous in, in what that all out kind of anaerobic capacity effort is. Then we get into max aerobic power, really kind of like the power at VO2 max. VO2 max is the highest amount of oxygen that your body is able to take in and use to produce energy. So oxygen plus carbohydrate and fat yields energy for the muscle then to use to contract. A muscle requires energy to contract, which then creates force. And that's what allows us to do whatever sport or activity we're doing. And so your VO2 max, again, there's a genetic component there. So a guy like Taylor Finney, uh, he chose his parents extraordinarily well and a mother that's an Olympic gold medalist, world champion, um, and a father who is also an Olympic bronze medalist and two stage wins at the Tour de France. So if you're looking to, you know, do well in cycling, choosing two parents with those kind of capacities to start with definitely helps you in that genetic lottery. Uh, he definitely won the, the lottery in that respect, but that. VO2 max still can respond to training. And, you know, these kind of efforts are sustainable for, again, a few minutes, you know, four, five, six minutes or so. And then you have to slow down. And then you would kind of go more to like a steady state, which is really that FTP, that what can be maintained. You know, we usually say for around an hour for a well-trained athlete is pretty much what that FTP value or functional threshold power, really maximum sustaining power for about an hour. And so each of those four components are, are different types of variables that all have a relationship to some type of, of kind of power production and, and then that performance. Yeah. And those are the uh, framework of the four dimensional training. So in the Sufferfest app, there is something called full frontal, which is the 4DP test. Um, I don't know. Has the name changed or is it still? Yep. That's uh, okay. it's still called the, the full frontal. Um, okay. And that is where you do all four of those type of efforts in, in one session. So I know it's not easy to do that, but it gives you that complete picture of what your abilities are. Yeah. And then from there, um, you can define your rider type. And before we get into that, I just want to talk a little bit about testing itself because a lot of people get anxious about doing a test or, you know, they think that they should be like super fit before they do a test. So like what, what is a good, yeah. when is a good time to test? Like, should you be totally recovered? Like, like when is a good time and what's a good mindset to have around this? Yeah. So it, a lot of people do have test anxiety both, you know, like they do like school type tests, you know, people get that anxious because like I'm being measured and I don't know, I'm, I'm afraid like you have some of those sometimes like bad thoughts in your head. And so for me, I always say like, it, yes, you can call it a test. It's an assessment. It's where are you at? That's what we're looking at. What can you currently do? 
We want to know what those points are so that we can help your training be most effective. So we do actually do this in training fairly early on, not when you're at your best. This is actually important that you might want to have a couple of weeks of consistent training and then, okay, let's see what I can do. And you don't want to come into it super fatigued. So you do want to have some days of relative rest and, and be at a point where you're like ready to put out that kind of effort. So mentally, like what, what it would take you to prepare for that and like nutrition, like how would you eat before a race? Like just kind of practice and rehearse some of those things. And that's actually one of the values of doing these kind of tests is you can kind of experiment with yourself and see what works well in terms of rest leading into an event, maybe the day before you need to do some shorter efforts just to kind of get things going, what we often call like a pre-race or activation or primer type efforts. And then you feel better the next day eating. Like when do you need to eat before that kind of hard effort? Is it like two to three hours before? And, you know, just practicing all those different things. And is oatmeal, you're like super go-to fuel and it works great. Or do you need waffles or a plain bagel or a you know, banana smoothie or whatever, like figure that stuff out, practice it a little bit. Like occasionally you fail, like, yeah, I'm not never, I'm not never doing that smoothie again. That didn't work for me. Better to find out in a, in a, you know, kind of a test session at your home rather than at a race where you maybe invest lots of time and money and energy. And now like, oops, I nutritionally blew it because I ate the wrong thing. Do not um, experiment with nutrition at races. Yeah. Heard nothing it here. New on race day. Yeah. You've heard it here. I've made that mistake in the past. <laughs> Do not experiment on race day. <laughs> yeah. Stick with a tried and true, you know, basic, <laughs> be basic at that point, I'd say in the last couple of days, but doing some of those kind of doing the tests like that repeatedly. And it's not like you do it every month. This is something we usually recommend, you know, at least eight to 12 weeks between tests. So again, you're not doing it super frequently. You're going to end up doing it a couple of times in a season, two, maybe three times in a season, which is good. That gives you a good benchmark of where you're starting. You get to see like the training that I've done, what kind of improvements that I've made, have I made. And again, you may see like I gained more in this value than this value. So sometimes like early in training, depending on what we're focusing on, like I may see an athlete's like anaerobic capacity go up and their VO2 max or max aerobic power go up a little bit, but their FTP didn't change. I'm like, oh, I'm not better. It's like, well, that one value wasn't better, but look at the gains that you made here. And now, you know, the second test, you know, another, another, you know, 10 weeks later, oh, wow. Now this is also catching up to those gains. And so like the time course of response of like how one given athlete responds to, to a training schedule and things like that clearly has some variability. And so just because you don't see a quick response doesn't mean that there's not change coming. And that's the other thing that again, seeing where you're at and what are your trends and tendencies over time from season to season really has value. Yeah. I like that there's multiple places to look for improvement with these tests because with an FTP test, you're just looking at FTP and normally like an FTP test is like, well, there's different ways that people do it, but it's like, go as hard as you can for 20 minutes or, and, and, you know, take an average or go hard for an hour and take an average. And like you said, that's not very specific. And with these, like, you're not looking for an absolute result to say I'm good or I'm bad or I'm fast or I'm not like, that's not what these tests are for. These tests are to measure improvement, to look at the training that you've been doing. Is it working? Is it not working? And where is my improvement? Not a judgment of who you are as an athlete and what your potential is. Absolutely. So true. Uh, one other thing, we do have a second test that we use that's even 
It doesn't give us all four of the metrics. It gives us the, the max aerobic power in FTP from what we call that the half Monty test. And it's kind of more of a, a ramp test to beginning that, that you do actually go to failure. So that part is all, you know, one minute long stages you go to, you can't go anymore. Then you recover. And then there's a, a 20 minute steady state portion that actually isn't all out. We, we use a kind of a controlled target heart rate for that second portion of the test. And so there's a bit of sports science involved in how we then calculate your, your FTP from that. But that's an easier kind of like entry into things. And especially if anybody has never done like that full frontal type of, you know, maximal efforts, doing full frontal first will give you a super good target for that. that especially the five minute test is where a lot of times people really, they miss it. They either start way too hard and fade, you know, or they start way too easy and they ramp up. If you do the the full front, the the half Monty test before full frontal, you know, some weeks or even days, you'll have a really good target. Okay, for the five minute, I'm going to use this map target. And, you know, after the first half of it or three minutes, if you feel good, then maybe try to ramp it up. And in most cases, if you're right on the edge at two, three minutes in, it's like, okay, just try to hold it there. You're, you have a good, good starting point. And same then from the the, the half Monty, what we get on the FTP gives you a good starting point for that 20 minute effort that you know, like, okay, this should be sustainable and you can make an adjustment as you're going along. And again, just for people listening, this um, training methodology that Neil has brought into the Sufferfest, this is exclusive to the Sufferfest app. So if you want to try this, you have to get the Sufferfest app. And we're going to get into rider That's types, it. but yeah, what- there's a free two week uh, trial. So you can do all those things in those first two weeks. So. Try awesome. it before you buy it. Yeah, you can try it before you buy it. But it's so much more than just pedaling a bike. And we were talking about this earlier. You know, can you talk about more? I don't like really like the word holistic because it sounds woo-woo, but like the complete picture of what it means to be an athlete and how the Sufferfest taps into that. Yeah. So so we think about it in like kind of a comprehensive aspect that again, being able to improve your specific fitness with, with what we do in training on the bike, absolutely is super important, but it is not the be all end all. So we have really three different areas in the app that we have to address other areas that are super critical to performance and health as well. So we have a, a mental training program, which again is about building and learning those mental skills. So you know, in the past, a lot of times people just think like, you know, mental training, either you're mentally tough or you're not. It's like, well, <laughs> uh, not necessarily. It's not like, I mean, it's not just something you either do or don't have. It's something that you can build with training and you, you have to pay mind. attention. You have to spend some time and energy doing it. And so we have basically this these series of modules to help you develop those mental skills and develop that mental toughness that then you can rely on when you go out. Sometimes it's in training. You just need to like figure out, I got to focus, like whatever. You might've had a lot of stuff going on at work or family. And it's like, okay, for right now I have this hour. Like, how can I get the most out of this hour? And how do you get that focus into what you're doing? And then you can go back to the rest of things that are going on that you have to manage. But for that period of time, like focusing is, is super important setting proper goals and and like having that big picture like what are you trying to do like that's a really important part you know of, of defining like then what's what's necessary and what do you need to focus on both in in the work that you do as well as then some of those mental skills that you might need to rely on and so these are are super you know important parts of training the head what's going on between the ears i would say you know in working with athletes at the very highest end i mean 
there's a few percent difference between first and 10th at the Olympic Games, literally. There's hardly any physical difference. More often, it comes down to what skill sets they have and how they're able to manage what those abilities are on the day in the situation that happens. So being able to refocus, adapt, adjust, all of those things, manage pressure, expectation, all those things are mental skills that, again, you can develop and you can improve. And so we have that component. Super important. Secondary, we do have uh, strength training, which is predominantly body weight exercises. Like you could use some additional things like a water bottle for a little out of resistance here and there, but we've done it such that it doesn't require lots of both space or equipment. So this is stuff you can do at home. And the strength, yeah, you're not going to be lifting super heavy weights. You're not doing deadlifts and this and that, but it's about maintaining that structural integrity that again, a lot of us that do kind of more straight line activities like cycling, you know, this constrained range of motion, repetitive, da, 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 da. we don't necessarily then pay enough attention to all these other areas in the single leg, the lateral movements are all part of what we do within that strength training, those sessions that we have built in there. And then there's another aspect that we do have is, is yoga. And, you know, within that, there's the mobility and flexibility aspects. Again, different parts of your body. It's not just about, you know, your legs, uh, your upper body. What's going on there is really important. Being able to relax and breathe and use your diaphragm and have good posture. All of those things are going to benefit you throughout your entire rest of your life, as well as then when you hop on a bike, you'll be able to get more out of yourself that way too. So we think about that comprehensive aspect that all of those things we like to address in our training plans, you can choose, you know, okay, you have a base plan that has the workouts and the progression, but then you can add in the mental training and yoga and strength or, you know, one or two of those things. If you have some other routine that you do on your own with strength training, okay, you can add in the yoga or the mental training. If you work with a sports psychologist already, okay, maybe you don't need that part, but the strength and yoga is something that'll help keep you on track. It's going to help you be a better athlete and healthier over the long term too. Yeah, like big picture thinking and, you know, aging as an athlete in a way that's going to allow you to keep using your body is, is really key. Definitely. As you can see the, uh, the gray in my beard, I'm not uh, Benjamin Buttoning over here. I am for sure aging every day and showing it. But staying on top of these little things, I feel better for sure. And, you know, I, I would say I've worked with a lot of older athletes. I've got uh, one guy that I coach who's 70 years old. He's getting ready for the track world championships. He's been a multiple time world champion in track cycling events, as well as on the road in criteriums and road race as well. And even actually tandem TT has meddled with his sister. But one of the biggest things is, you know, literally more than a decade ago, it's like, okay, strength training isn't just like for the winter months. This is something you need to do year round. Yes, we may have slightly different focus at different times, but this is really important for you and your future self. Like I've never met an older athlete, you know, who said, I wish I didn't do the strength training. There are a lot of folks that get old, you know, as they age, like, I wish I had done some of these things that would have helped me be better off right now, better bone density, just be stronger because we're going to see some decline as we age. And so if you can, A, get a little bit of a higher point to start with and then minimize that slide, that's really what we're looking for. So, you know, we're not trying to make super Hulk power strength out of this, but it's about being stable, strong, healthy, and even some of this strength training, like it's not just the muscles, it's actually the connective tissue. 
So if you think of tendonitis, that's like an inflammation that's an overload of the tendon. Well, when you do strength training, you're not just changing the muscle integrity, but actually the tendon gets stronger too. So it can tolerate more of that endurance stuff before it becomes a problem. So there's a ton of value there for all ages. The, the, the younger you start, the better off. But as you get older, if you haven't incorporated, you got to get on it ASAP. This is my pep talk here. This, they, I need this pep talk because... I have a one-year-old, like I have all these businesses. I'm still a professional athlete and the strength training is one of the first things to go. So I'm sure somebody else listening was like, oh yeah, I can totally relate. So if you only have like, say the average person has, let's say seven hours a week to train. We talked about efficiency on the bike, but how much of that time, if they only have seven hours, should they be spending doing these other things? I would say having like two, about 30 minute strength training sessions would out of those seven hours be an absolute critical investment. That's not like a nice to have, that's a need to have. And all of our strength training sessions literally are like 15 to 30 minutes or so. They're not longer than that because we do know that people don't have this huge amount of time to, to you know spend in, in some of these things that they think are auxiliary, but are truly critical. That one other hour, so I'm taking two of your hours off the bike. Oh my gosh, you're only gonna ride five hours. You're going to do two 30-minute strength sessions and that other hour you're going to do some mix of yoga and mental training depending like kind of what your needs are and what what you also like to do. Uh, if you like to do yoga, you know, doing two, 220, most again, our yoga sessions are predominantly 15, 15 minutes in the app. And so it's not a huge endeavor there to do two or three of those in a week. Whether it's before a workout, we have some that are kind of like an activation before you jump on, especially if you're jumping on the train or going out to ride outside that you spend those 10 or 15 minutes preparing. Or as you finish up, coming in and doing like a core strengthener one, you know, for 15 minutes is definitely going to help you in the long run. Those five hours then on, on the bike, I would say like if you get one weekend day and you can do a longer ride, maybe that's a couple hours or so. And, and you know, depending on what you're trying to train for, maybe maybe some sort of a race or a simulation or just a fun ride and endurance ride getting out. If you love mountain biking, you love riding trails. Don't worry about your power meter and your heart rate. Just go ride trails and, and have fun doing that like on the weekend. And then let's see, we're down to three hours. Okay. We got like potentially three, one hour sessions or something like that, an hour and a half, an hour and a 30 minute day. The 30 minute day would be a recovery session. Actually spending 30 minutes, getting on the bike, riding super easy would be one of those other key sessions. So I've, I put the long ride and then the recovery as, as critical. And then two days with some sort of quality, again, dependent on what your strengths as a rider are or weaknesses that you might need to address and what, what your event needs are. So you have one that could be, you know, kind of in this progression of things of building up towards what you really want you know what your primary goal is and then one day that you're addressing a weakness and that's i think we didn't talk about it but like rider type gives us an idea of like where those strengths and weaknesses are from from when you do the the full frontal and we look at that ability of those four different things relative to you so that's a big difference we don't look at like your ability relative to the best in the world which is where if you look at some of those old charts and things like that you know what's your watts per kilo for this it's like I'm terrible here. I'm really bad there. I'm probably, I guess, on this chart, the worst in the world here. Nobody's ever seen the value this low. And this one, I'm not even on the chart at all. So I guess, uh, yeah, that, that doesn't feel good. We like to think about, okay, what's what are your abilities relative to you and where are you stronger? 
you know, you may have a sprinter rider type because you're better at sprinting than these other things. So it still doesn't mean like you're going to want to line up next to, you know, Mark Cavendish, like he, he's probably still going to outsprint you, but relatively speaking, you're better at that than some of these other things. So we like to think about, you know, what are the good things you have relative to yourself and then where are those opportunities to improve or weaknesses. Yeah. I always think of it as opportunity. So that's just the coach that's, talking. To that's, me. that's the mental training part of viewing, you know, viewing challenges and limits and weaknesses as opportunities to improve. Also, I would say the mental training aspect will help you if you have to back off the bike because it takes confidence to say, I'm going to just go easy today because I'm tired or I'm going to ride a little bit less so I can improve in these other areas. And that prescription that you just gave for like a very, you know, it's a very general prescription for people for a training plan, but that's, that's such a powerful thing. And it gives you permission to, you know, maybe be a more well-rounded athlete. So with the time we have left, can you jump into the different rider types on, on Sufferfest? Yeah. So as I was just mentioning, those rider types are really like a, a relative to your ability variation of things. And so it's something that's really different, I would say, in the space that a lot of times people are looking like your rider type is compared to everyone else. It's like, well, you're not, you know, most of us aren't competing against the rest of the world. Most of us are, are judging our success relative to ourselves. It's like most people go out, you know, whether they look at on Strava or they do an event, it's like, how did I do relative to the last time I did this or to someone else who's kind of a similar age and, you know, category or, or those things. It's not like, how good was I compared to, you know, Rowan Dennis or and it's like, okay, well, he's pretty good to start with. So it's like a harsh comparison. So let's look at you, your abilities. Where are those things? So we have rider types of sprinter, attacker, time trialist, climber, roller. I think that's all. Yeah. So sprinter is really somebody that comparatively that short, like five second type of power is what they do best at. And so it's clearly like that that is better than the others. Attacker is more where that anaerobic capacity. So the ability to go really deep, like once or repeatedly short many times over and over and over. So like a short track, kind of cross-country mountain bike or like a criterium rider often is kind of that attacker style. Oh, had pursuiter. Then that's somebody generally that's good at that kind of like max aerobic power, that like five minute ish type effort. They can go one really big hit like that. So sometimes on a climb, like if there's like a couple minute long climb, so I think of like Philippe Gilbert at the whatever race where it's like you know nasty climb and then it levels off just a little bit, so it ends up you know the climb's like three minutes and the road is two minutes. Like that's a good example of kind of that five minute type of power that 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 kind of pursuit type of effort other than just on the track itself pursuit, which is a specific track event. Then we have climber type, which is one of the only ones where we actually do look at that watts per kilo, because if you have some of those other, other values that are pretty high, but you just have a higher FTP watts per kilo, you're going to climb pretty fast. And that tends to then reflect in, in the climber type. Time trialist is going to be somebody who has generally that FTP as a strength, but 
it's more an absolute power. So like for, for guys, you know, if you're able to hold over 300 watts at, at FTP, you're a little bit more in that time trial type. If you don't have a super strength in one of those er- other areas or for women, if you're holding over 200 watts at FTP, then you generally would have a pretty good ability to time trial. Again, there's other how we categorize and classify if somebody has an extraordinary sprint and a really high like time trial power. If that sprint is just that much better, they would be classified as a sprinter type, even though they can also time trial well. So a, a, a sprinting time trialist does exist in the real world. There are people out there who can do both of those things pretty well. And then we have the allure, which is one that is kind of consistent across all of them. There's nothing that's just way off the chart better than the others. And so a good consistency across that. And so Rolure is again, a type that, that means like right now you don't have any super strength nor any super weakness. So it's like all around, you can do a lot of things. And so, you know, there's different events and things in cycling that really pay dividends to have that. I can do a lot of different things. Well, there's just so much that we could have talked about in today's podcast you know, your coaching background with all these like Olympians and world champions and world tour riders, your own um, accolades as an amazing athlete. Like there's so many things we could have talked about and, or even just gone, like, I love getting geeky and going deep into the weeds on the sports physiology part. But I think that we've done a really great job covering all the bases to set people up so that they understand what training is. They understand like where to go using the Sufferfest app to not only um, see where they can improve, but also learn that training isn't an absolute compared to somebody else. It's about improving relative to yourself and that there's more to training than just pedaling a bike. There's the mental aspect, the strength training aspect, the yoga and mobility aspect. And it's not just about riding tons of hours. It's about the quality and efficiency of the hours that you're doing. Absolutely. Man, you nailed that summary. (laughs) I think you've been doing this this a while. Um, Neil, um, so number one, people can go to the Sufferfest app to find all of these amazing workouts that are built from the 4DP test. Or if you just want to do a one-off workout or a one-off strength workout or mental workout, you can do that. But if people want to connect with you, is there a place for them to do that? Probably through Twitter and Instagram, you can find me there as well as then through the Wahoo website. And if you're right into the customer service there, uh, both within the app, within the Sufferfest or, or Wahoo, uh, you'll be able to get, get in touch with me that way. On Twitter, I'm, I think, at, just at Neil Henderson and Instagram, it's at Neil A. Henderson with the A in the middle there. All right. Well, it's super fun. Um, I've been a Wahoo athlete basically since the beginning. And just to see the evolution of Wahoo, to see them integrate the Sufferfest into every, like, it just, just like the perfect thing to be adding in. So yeah, thank you for coming on the podcast. It was great to get to spend some time chatting with you. And I feel more motivated after this and I'm sure other people do as well. Great. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity, Sonia. Really appreciate it. And good luck in the upcoming events too. I hope you learned a lot and enjoyed that episode. Make sure to check out the Sufferfest training app and use my name, all caps, S-O-N-Y-A 60 to get two and a half months free access to the app. And if you're enjoying the show, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe as that helps the show reach others. And I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. And I so appreciate that you are here. See you next week.